Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have with us today, Dr. Keisha Ewers, back for a second round. She is a nurse practitioner with her PhD in sexology who sees patients online and runs an incredible educational empire, is what I would call it. So all you do is education and inspiration, is what I would say. You train health coaches through AIM, the Academy for Integrative Medicine. You have a number of online programs for people to be their best selves. You're also the author of three books, Solving the Autoimmune Puzzle, the Quick and Easy Paleo Autoimmune Cookbook, and the Mystic Medicine Mandala Coloring Book. You are actually well known for your mystic approach to medicine and has led seekers and on trips to sacred sites around the world, all the while anchoring your work in the here and now moments of relationship to self, others, and world. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Dr. Keisha Ewers has raised four children, been a flight nurse and an ICU nurse. You love to run, play outside. You continue to have an incredible sense of humor, and you are the full package. I can't honor you enough as being my mentor and friend over these last 15 years. And so I am really grateful for you to be back here with us and really excited to talk about sex, talk about Tantra, talk about relationship. Welcome, Dr. Keisha. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here, Jillian. Let's talk about sex. The reason that I'm interested in having this conversation about sex is because people don't talk about it enough and people have a lot of feelings about it. When you talk about sex, what's the approach that you take? I use something I call the freedom framework when I work with a lot of people that are trying to reverse autoimmune disease and other chronic illnesses. And when we start talking about how to do that, I have this framework that I use to sort of create a structure for how to organize everything. And one of those data points that I'm looking for is something I call your libido level. And, you know, years ago, when I started having patients come into my private practice, I heard a lot of them asking me for bioidentical hormone replacement. And I do prescribe that a lot. But, you know, when I would ask questions like, so why do you think you need hormones? Uh, Libido came up, like my sex drive is gone. My poor partner is very patient with me. I feel so sorry for him or her, but I just am not in the mood. And I'd start scratching the surface with asking a few more questions. Like, so do you like your partner? (laughs) That seems like a fairly logical question to ask. So do you like him or her, right? You would be surprised at how many people would burst into tears at that question. I know it was heartbreaking. Or I would say, when's the last time you had a libido level that you were actually satisfied with? And again, I would get tears. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I started really thinking about this and looking in PubMed where we keep our scientific literature and I couldn't find anything that was reflecting mm-hmm. what I was seeing in my office. And so I went back to school and got a PhD in sexology to answer the question, does old emotional hurt, can it get triggered by a current partner and affect your sex drive? And another kind of piece of the puzzle that I was operating with was Ayurvedic medicine, you know, as far as a a paradigm that I see through. And, you know, you're an Ayurvedic practitioner. And so you know that in Sanskrit, there's this term called ojas, right, which is like your life force. And I realized we don't have a correlative in Western medicine or the English language for ojas. And I call it now ojus, right? And according to the Ayurvedic frame of reference, you're born with a certain amount of ojas and when you're out, you die. And so ojas, the way that Ayurvedic medicine approaches it, and it's the same with like Jin in Chinese medicine, J-I-I-N, is really looking at like this overall vitality. And so I started thinking about like, what is a correlative that I could think of in our way of, of seeing the world that would sort of kind of put this together, right? And I thought, well, libido kind of comes sort of close because libido comes from the word desire and desire in Latin means from the stars. And to me, that felt like, oh, if you're born with a certain amount of ojas and when you're done with it, you die, then that's actually the vitality that's supposed to fuel you to serve your life purpose. And so I started thinking about libido in that same way and then looking for what I think of as your libido level and getting people to think about that, like not just sexually, even though we're talking about sex, but this is actually what fires up your passion, not just for intimacy with another or yourself, but with life in general. And it's what motivates you to get into the flow of life, you know, to work with it in the cycles of nature and not be disconnected from it and your body and yourself and your spirit. 
And so I started looking at it in this sort of larger way. And, you know, it became this really interesting. So it boils down to sex, but it's like the energy required to show up to be intimate with yourself or another and intimate with life itself and all the relationships that you have in this life. So the libido then is sort yeah. of like the idiot light on the dashboard of your car, where if it reads E, because you have no more energy left, you know, you're empty and you don't have any passion and vitality for living your life purpose and the things that used to bring you joy, you know, the dreams that you used to have that maybe you've given up on. You know, if, if you do have a car and your gas gauge goes down to E, you're not going to just like push the gas pedal down and try and go further and faster. You know, you're going to end up on the side of the road broken down until you go and get some fuel for your tank. And that's actually as humans, we don't tend to really do the same thing for ourselves. Chug down caffeinated beverages and energy drinks and short chain carbohydrates and things like that in an effort to keep this body and, you know, mind going in a forward motion that's usually productivity oriented and achievement oriented instead of checking in with like, oh, this being, what's it trying? What's the consciousness of all the parts of you? What's the information it's trying to give you that you're not listening to? And libido for me and that level of it is a measurement of where you're at with that. Our topic today is to kind of like think about and understand sex and connection. So the first piece is that when we're so overwhelmed with our drive forward that we've emptied our gas tank and we're still pushing on the pedal, I think that analogy is perfect for so many of us who are just trying to kind of keep going. And part of that is our world. Some of us don't have choices or don't have as much choice, especially if you're parenting young ones and you're working, you know, you're trying to provide home and hearth and food. And, you know, sometimes there are periods in everybody's life. And unfortunately, they last longer for some than others that you kind of have to just keep showing up, even though your tank is emptying, emptying, emptying. What do we do about that? Well, I would beg the question that that's actually an accurate statement. You can still have the same exact schedule that you've always had, but how you perceive it is everything. And so if you're showing up with young ones, right, and having to put a roof over the head and provide for heart and home, how is it that you're perceiving that? Is it something that is very stressful in your perceptual field? Or is it something that feels like a blessing and an honor uh, that can have a lot of graciousness and gratitude and appreciation encapsulated around it? Mm-hmm. That will actually change your biochemistry. It'll change the way you use your fuel. It'll change your neurology how you perceive, and this is what I love, Buddhism has got this just dialed in. They think about like the way that you perceive and and 17 different steps. And in those 17 steps, you know, it comes from information that comes through your your eye sense, your nose sense, your ear sense, you know, your Mm. sense, right? And Mm. your taste. So the five senses, they're considered five minds, these five sense organs. And then your sixth mind is the one that synthesizes all of it. So they think about like information being brought in to the, to the doorway of your mind through your senses, right? So like I can see behind me these green trees, right? And I'll, I'll perceive those. And whatever is visual there, it's interesting because you can't actually take in information that's from two different minds at the same time. So I can, like when you're watching television, right? You're going to flip back and forth between audio and, and visual, what you're doing is you're taking in one piece of information and then you're doing 17 different steps to get to an opinion about it or a perceptual. If you perceive yourself as stressed, this actually changes your brain architecture, right? So a study was done that looked at people that fill out the perceived stress index. And if they marked themselves as being perceived as overwhelmed, overscheduled, then it actually caused the same brain changes, which is shrinkage in the prefrontal cortex and growth in the right side of the amygdala, which is that part of like looking for if you're safe, right? In that limbic system. And that's the same exact change that's found in people with post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's interesting. You keep thinking of yourself as stressed, you actually are going to change your brain architecture and your neurology in the same way that if you had big giant PTSD trauma, right? And yeah. so when you say, when the way you phrase the question is, well, what about people that just, you know, they live in a culture that's productivity oriented, it's driving all of us with an ideology that's based on consumption, more, more, more. And so at some point, each of us will fall and buy, like not fall, but buy into that in whatever way we do. 
And then we have formed our own track, our own hamster wheel. We're not locked into anything, right? We can always change it. But if we sense and we, and we sense ourselves as trapped, if we say, oh, I can't keep up with this, then you're actually going to not have any libido because then you put yourself in the position of zebra being chased by a lion and then you're about to get eaten for dinner. And that zebra knows it's not safe to reproduce right now. And so all of the you know, resources in terms of hormones that are responsible for you to feel desire for not only sex, but anything in life that has to do with self-actualization will go away as your body is in survival mode because survival wins over reproduction. So if you perceive yourself, and that's the big word, right? As being overwhelmed and stressed, then you're not going to have a sex drive, nor should you, because your body says, I can't even keep you alive. How in the world am I going to keep someone else alive? And we have to, even though we don't think about it as that drive creates children, that's actually the way that the body's wired. It doesn't say, oh, you're on birth control. So therefore that doesn't matter. I'll go ahead and let you have a sex drive. It doesn't perceive that, right? <laughs> oh, you're using a condom? Okay, let's turn this up then. Go for it, girl. It's all about, have fun. Yeah, they can't actually filter that, right? <laughs> what happens, what's the fatigue that comes with even being less social? So as people get more and more stressed and the load gets greater and greater, can you talk a little bit more about kind of what happens with our relationships and our connections, our ability to forgive, to listen, clarity, to listen with compassion? What happens? Yeah, we don't even know what's going to happen right now. You know, <laughs> like we need longitudinal outcome studies for this giant historical moment we're all living through, right? We have no idea the level of trauma that is being created right now, but we know it's happening. Yeah. We know that children being raised in this era are going to have a story to tell through their neurology, through their biology, their health outcomes, and also their mental health, right? And their mood and how they cognize. Like we know that all this is being altered right now in real time. And we don't know what that's going to look like. We do know that social connections are vital. And here's the other thing is from Rupert Sheldrake's work, you know, on plants where he coined the term morphogenetic field, right? That we know that we pass information in this energy field to each other. We don't have to be right next to one another. And that we're all as humans, part of this morphogenic field, right the second. And so therefore all the anxiety and the trauma and the fear that is on the globe right now, as a human race, we're in the middle of that. So whether we feel it or not, we're actually getting that information passed between each other, which is going to be affecting our genetics. We know this from the Holocaust. We know that things that are giant actually affect us for up seven generations later. We know that's happening right now. And we have longitudinal outcome studies from other giant crises. And this one is bigger than, you know, anything any of us have witnessed in this lifetime. It begs the question, so then what do we do about this, mm -hmm. right? And so connecting, you know, making sure that we connect to self. Some people, like I use the Enneagram a lot. And Enneagram, of course, is a tool for understanding the way your ego voices itself into the world and, and helps you get your needs met. And there are nine different types of personality structure and ways that you can get your needs met. And we usually have one sort of command center. Some people are saying, oh, I've been training for something like this my whole life. My husband's one of them. Don't have to see people. Fantastic. So mm -hmm. the people that are more internally focused, self-referencing first are actually doing pretty well, probably in this period of time. And that's kind of what I've heard in my patient population too. Yeah, I don't really notice anything. It's pretty cool to me. People that are other outward centered and oriented, having a very difficult time, unless they have a level of self mastery, where they can recognize and not move into fight, flight, freeze places, right with their nervous system reaction and response to this. People that are worst case scenario thinkers that are Kind of like, I don't even know in a normal time period, if the world is going to be here the next time I take a step are really freaked out right now, right? Because all of their worst fears that they had been fantasizing about in their darkest nightmares are now coming true. <laughs> so there are different ways each of us are, are managing this. And, you know, I think ultimately the ones that are more self-referencing, internal oriented. It's really important right now for them to reach up and out, to connect to others. 
And then the ones that are more external oriented, and these are most of my patients, you know, that have autoimmune disease are externally oriented. They're caregivers of everyone but themselves, you know, and so now they're just like, here, I have been putting my fingers in the dike of life, you know, to make sure that everyone around me is cared for. And I barely kept my head above water. And now it's just like I'm, I'm drowning. That, of course, is not accurate. It's a perception, right? And so the growth edge is to start to connect, to, to come inward and go, okay, in this moment, in this breath, I am alive, right? In this moment, in this breath, I am grateful. In this moment, in this breath, I love, right? And it's just like affirmation of life over and over again. And really checking in with like, how is this body? How is this body feeling? What is this body sensing? And stopping the like, oh, how is everyone else doing, right? In Hinduism, 10,000 years ago, it was understood that there were four ages, the third of which is what we are in now. And it's four ages between big bangs. And these yugas last thousands and tens of thousands of years. So we've had our big bang and we're in our third yuga, the Kali yuga, yuga's era or age. Kali is the goddess of death and destruction. And this is the time that things do fall apart. We are on the cusp of the Satya yuga, which is how I was trained and introduced to the Kali yuga 20 years ago, which is Satya meaning truth. So age of truth. That our one struggle, our small struggle is happening within era, within an age of struggle. How do we find ourselves? How do we ground? How do we anchor ourselves? How do we find connection? If I don't answer the how do we find connection, circle me back to it. Because the Mm -hmm. first part of it is, I just think so important and you put it so beautifully. There are other civilizations that have also predicted this kind of an end, right? Mayan calendar predicted it. There are many different really advanced civilizations, including Hinduism, that have pointed to this. And, you know, when we start thinking about a lot of people will panic at that idea, like, oh, we're at the end, you know. And if you just look like, again, outside life, like the only promise that nature provides to us, really the only promise, the only real capital T truth that we have is that we're going to die. And that's really interesting to really (laughs) contemplate, right? We're not promised anything else. We're not promised that our bodies are going to work in a certain way, that we're going to have certain kinds of relationships that, you know, like this, and I call this the era of entitlement too, that we think that when we flutter our eyes open in the morning that we are supposed to be able to see, and that when we put food in our mouths, we are supposed to be able to taste, and that it's supposed to happen. And that we get angry if the body doesn't do what we ask it to do. Well, it's the same thing with the culture, right? We're microcosms of a macrocosm of of a larger picture. And so what that ultimately means is the cycles of living and dying that go spring, summer, autumn, Mm -hmm. uh, winter are actually happening on a larger cycle than that, right? With this planetary. Mm -hmm. And then it happens on a, a real minute cycle inside of us as our cells live and die and they go through their own mini births and then our breath every single cycle of breathing we have an inspiration and then we have an exhalation and that's like a little little mini birth and death right and so if we can drop into the understanding and the realization and, and realization right realizing means we're taking some reality that we looked at in one way and we're we're transforming it like oh i see right and so when we can look at, at this idea of a, a culture and a societal death and transformation, always at the bottom of the wheel, it will come back up. Cycles are in circles. And so, you know, at the end of winter comes spring, no matter what, it just always happens, right? Then there's rebirth. And so if we can start to feel like we're in the flow of a natural order of things and that it's happening inside of us and inside of our families, um, in my garden outside, right? <laughs> it's always happening in front of us. It's when we get disconnected from that very real capital T truth, everything dies. Then we start to have panic and fear. Oh, we're just part of the rhythm, right? We have these falcons that are out here that I've been tracking since March and they've hatched. We have three of these beautiful falcons that have been growing up with their two parents. We have these five peregrine falcons outside this window. Wow. So magical. And I got to watch flying day, like learn to fly day. I got to watch the hunt day, right? It's just right outside the window. And we're surrounded by their calls. They're all around our house all the time now. And, and it's like being in sort of a Western movie, 
you know, it's like this down <laughs> all the time. And I started noticing yesterday that there have been no hummingbirds at the feeder. And the little robin's nest that my that's on the end of our deck underneath, the little babies have died, I think, because the parents mm-hmm. got picked off by the falcons. And so it's just like that can cause sadness. Oh, those poor little robins. I was watching them grow, right? And and they starved to death because the falcons probably took their parents. And so you can watch, like, life is brutal. And humans <laughs> are probably the most brutal of all the species that live here. And so when you kind of think about that, like, oh, just acceptance of the rhythms of nature, like this is how it is, then you can kind of ground into, but that's not happening right this moment, right? I am fully alive and I can take in all this beauty that surrounds me. I can mourn for the robins who died and then I can marvel at majesty of the falcons, right? And then drop into the realization that I'm part of that cycle too. And so the grounding into that of just becoming one with nature, I think that's where humans get into panic is we've been, we've really disconnected ourselves. We've sort of assumed this idea that we're in charge of nature. I'm going to scrub the uh, crayon you guys have all put on my walls and the oil stains and the, you know, like all the things humans have done to this earth. We're not very good guests. And, you know, Mother Nature is this most gracious, forgiving hostess. And like if if I had humans that behave like throwing garbage and dumping chemicals in my home, I would kick you out too, you know? And so like, okay, she's doing this really gently, actually, really treating us gently. Just stay inside. I'm going to go about cleaning up your mess, right? (laughs) (laughs) You guys are all in timeout. And so if you can kind of like drop into that, then it gives you a sense of joy. Like, oh, I don't have to feel fear for the planet. She's got this, mm-hmm. right? We need to get our act together. We need to take etiquette lessons about how to be guests on a planet. And then maybe we can actually shift even the cultural stories that we have here about like what our role is and this idea of dominion and stewardship. You know, I yeah. think we need to probably throw those out the window and move more into like, listening for the rules that are given to us to be good guests. Talk to us about Tantra. What is Tantra? So Tantra actually literally is scripture. A Tantra is a teaching. And so we don't actually ever say that in English in the West. We don't say a Tantra, which is actually proper. We just say Tantra, right? Mm -hmm. And a Tantra is a teaching. And Tantric teachings are... They exist inside of any non-dual Hinduism called non-dual tantric Shaivism and inside of Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist practices and it's called highest yoga tantra. And what they are is exactly what that says is non-duality so that you can recognize like death, excrement, (laughs) murder, COVID, disease, all of it is God. All of it is here for us. It's not being done to us. And there's not like in Tantra, there's this understanding that you don't have subject and object. You are that. Mm -hmm. And so the practices are meant to bring you to that place where you realize your position as co-creating your reality. And so the law of attraction and manifestation that we have in kind of our culture in Buddhism would have a lot of facets to it that are called near enemies to truth. In other words, they're almost true, but they're kind of enemies of truth because they're so close to truth that they get you clouded. So one of those would be um, a near enemy to truth would be like, you always have to think positively. If you think negatively, then it's going to happen. You're drawing that towards you. So then what it does is it says, oh, I'm not allowed to actually have my feelings, which then what are you going to do with those feelings? You're going to suppress them in your body saying that they're not allowed. You're going to disavow them and then the body has to digest them and if you're not allowing them to digest because you won't recognize that you just plowed down a whole bag of Doritos in the form of your thoughts then it's just going to ferment in there and rot and you're going to get sick so not digesting feelings and thoughts is what leads to illness too and so when we think about tantra then tantra allows for everything including sex so Many people in the United States have heard and in Europe, you know, um, westernized cultures that have Christian and Abrahamic traditions. So 
Islam, Judaism, Christianity have heard from their pulpits in some way, shape or form that sex is bad, that desire is bad, whether it's of the devil or evil or needs to be harnessed or fought, sin, like all of these. And it creates duality, right? And then that creates a lot of unhappiness. And tantric practices in the 1950s and 60s as Buddhism and non-dual tantric Shaivism were showing up on the shores of the United States and Europe, people started discovering that some of the practices that are done to create a collapse of the wall between subject and object, right, the non-duality, were actually leading to greater bliss in the bedroom. Because if you see the, the other that you're being intimate with as yourself, Mm -hmm. right? And you can learn how to recycle energy through your chakra system and with another, then it can create expanded time of orgasm of different, different varieties, right? Mm -hmm. A whole different spectrum and menu option than we have in the United States from just Masters and Johnson's research, right? So it creates more nuance, subtlety and variety and sexual life And so then that got, because we're a very reductionist culture, that got taken and reduced down to, you know, this is about sex. When in fact, Tantra actually is not, but that's okay. But it does make sex if you use it. So going to sort of like a Tantric workshop, you kind of miss the entire boat, you know, of what is actually possible for providing freedom from what I call the, the tyranny of what your ego has said is true and who you are in the world and what you are supposed to be achieving and doing and producing, that ego is very tyrannical. And so Mm -hmm. the closer you can get to that space of absolute freedom and self-realization, then that creates peace and happiness and, you know, an expanded consciousness that brings equanimity to life, which is just really wonderful. And so Mm -hmm. then that can also include include, um, your sex life. Can you talk about some of the tantric practices that might be associated with how we can digest COVID? So you can think of, for example, if just the statement of I am that, right? Like Jillian, you are me and I am you, right? Mm-hmm. And and inside of Western psychology, you know, that's like a, a lack of boundaries. <laughs> but inside of a spiritual practice of this nature, it's the recognition that maybe lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, at some point, every every human and even animal that's on this planet or has been on this planet has been a parent of yours. And so when you can do that, then you can actually loop COVID into that. I am COVID. COVID is me, right? So then there's not this other organism out here that can cause me disease. It's like, well, I am that. What information is this providing for me? And so what the tantric practice includes is to be able to actually embrace the fact that you are going to die and that you don't know when that's going to be. And so if you can actually be in that space, like I never know when that's going to happen, when my life is going to be over. So therefore, in every single second of every single minute and hour of the day that I am alive, I treasure it as if it is my last. And then I work really hard on my spiritual self to make sure that whatever it is my soul wanted to learn in this lifetime is actually getting done because I don't know like what time period I have here. So then COVID becomes this beautiful teacher of reaching into you with that urgency of reminding like, oh yeah, my time could be here now. What is it that I still want to make sure that I have cultivated in this life on a spiritual level? And for me, it's cultivating a generous heart. That's what's been up lately. So it's like, okay, so a generous heart. And that means generous towards self too. It's like self-compassion. Where are all the places? Where are all the versions? Keisha 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. I'm at 55.0 right now, right? That, And they're all in there, all the older versions too. And so are the so-called future ones. According to quantum physics, we don't have like this linear time. So they're all available to me. And so which one of those has not been forgiven? Which one of those is languishing in the corner, having been shunned or rejected by a later version that needs to be brought in and loved and seen as God? And so, you know, we're always like, if you think about that, like however much wisdom you have today, and you can look back at your 20 year old self and go, oh, baby, 
don't scoop it. I'm so sorry. This 55 year old version, probably there's an 88 year old that's waiting to say the same thing, you know? And so then you can see that and go, Oh yeah. So forgive as you go, because you're working with the skill level and developmental level that you're at right in this moment. So one way that we can look at and sort of practice Tantra in the age of COVID, and I'm obviously we're not practicing Tantra. It's a huge science is what I'm trying to say. It's way bigger than, you know, the, the minutes we're going to spend on it in this podcast. But to begin that process would be to really embrace what feels hard or embarrassing or gross or humiliating or bad or shameful or embarrassing or ugly. Those judgments keep us from real intimacy with another and with ourselves. So if there's a part of you that you feel has just really screwed up in the past that you just don't even want to look at and you hold a huge energetic walls, the energetic walls are what you keep your disowned parts on the other side of. I think of them as like your Voldemort babies, the Voldemort baby that was under the bench in the train station at the end. And it's like this disowned and it's like, oh, there's my crazy Oh, she's back there. The one that never wants to be seen as crazy. Or there's my murderess. There's my one, unintelligent one. The one who never wants to be seen as any of the things is behind that energy wall. And we spend so much, so much energy holding that wall up. Once you can let that down and go, come here, crazy one. I love you, right? It's okay, (laughs) right? (laughs) It doesn't matter what other people think of you. You get to be crazy. Or, you know, oh, you do have a weak mind. Oh, and I love you anyway, right? My own weak mind. And so when that energy is released now, my gosh, sex is off the charts. So people don't, when they think about tantric practices, they're like, share the secret. What do you do with your vagina? How do you breathe? <laughs> like when, when, when the penis is erected inside of you, what position will actually give you the biggest orgasm? Is it going to be clitoral? Is it going to have a G spot? What about your G spot? You know, yeah. what about anal play? So those things are all fun to play with for sure. But the things that keep you from playing with it, there's not magic. Right. You yeah. start playing with these things. But the thing that keeps you from it is is like the places that you are judging, disgusting, embarrassing, shameful, you know, all of those things. And so that's why for me, when you ask me about tantric practices, it's finding the God in yourself and everything around you that is your life, including COVID and Falcons, Eden Robbins. You know, it's like and your own death and the fact that you are dying right now and deteriorating and aging is happening. It's happening and you cannot do anything about it. I don't care how much Botox you get. So when you can actually embrace all of that and be like, oh, right. (laughs) I'm alive, right. (laughs) And just like have all that joy and just like exclaim to the universe, you know, like let all that shit down. Then when you engage sexually, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> All that energy is here. It's not about chorgasms. It's about like real lifegasms. And so it's like, what keeps you from that? What keeps you from actually looking at COVID as a teacher? What keeps you from looking at your sagging arms as a teacher of impermanence? What keeps you from just letting the wrinkles just happen? And the uncertainty. I mean, we have so much, our world right now is so much uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And will my job be there? Will my partner be there? Right. Will my house be there? We have so many floods, so many tsunamis, so many earthquakes, so many volcanoes. We have so many storms. It was 125 degrees in Baghdad today. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, our temperatures are rising. Our seas are rising. We are potentially nearing extinction and in the midst of that, the practice is to recognize that whatever comes our way, be it COVID, be it unemployment, be it the stock market drops out, be it 125, racism, degrees. 125 degrees, racism, injustice, mm-hmm. inequity, our children are hurt, our grandparents are hurt, our parents die, we lose everything, we get injured, our body hurts so badly we can't get up. We can't get out of bed. We are taking care of children who are sick and awake in the night, and we have to go to work in the day. Our physiology is going to continue. Hopelessness, anger, loss, grief, something being done to me that I don't have control of. So the emotion right there needs to be digested. So you can actually line them all up like you just did. And then what do you feel when you see it, read it, hear it, speak it? Like get in touch with the emotion. What do you feel? Oh, I feel that grief and I feel it here in my body. Okay. And then feel it like really feel it. 
and let it digest. Ultimately, what this puts in front of me is that we're nearing extinction and dying. Okay. And so I need, I get to feel what I get to feel about that. Let it move through you. You have to process it. But what Americans have tended to do, and COVID has made this stop to a great degree. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Is to get super busy and buy more stuff. And so COVID has been like, no, 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 no. Sit still and be with us. Do you think, I mean, because I feel like there is a national freak out happening and part of it is trying to figure, you know, I'm in the same situation with our Seattle schools are closed. I have a five-year-old who's supposed to be entering kindergarten. If he goes to his, stays in his daycare, then he can't be enrolled in his kindergarten. So there are a lot of details Mm -hmm. to figure out. On the same front, I feel like the freak out that I'm seeing in a lot of people is because as we've had to slow down, we suddenly, all we can see are the feelings that we've been trying to avoid for decades and decades exactly. and decades. And that that bucket of tears cannot hold back anymore. That's why the racial progression is happening right now that has needed to happen yes. since Martin Luther King was assassinated. And we've just been too busy. People are able to be like, whoa, okay, this needs to happen right now. If we were in our normal life, normal, and everyone's busy, 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 this stuff would continue as it is. It's only because of COVID that we've been able to sit still, start to look around, feel our feelings. And there are a lot of arrested development people out there, toddlers, basically, in developmental stages that are adults who are now feeling their feelings for the very first time, perhaps, and someone's not giving them a lollipop to feel better. Now you get to learn how to process your feelings, right? Not have your body have to take them on. And if, you know, like a lot of people are getting to the place where they're like, I'm going to sell this house and I'm going to move out here with another group of people that think like I do. And you see all these intentional living communities that are springing up all over the place. Single family dwellings are becoming a thing of the past. Thank God. Mother Earth can't handle them anymore. And the way that we've done school, that's being reinvestigated, right? And so we're, COVID is forcing us to move into, you know, these communities that are interrelated and interdependent. Instead of all these little independent people getting in their cars every morning, going to their little jobs, coming back, falling into bed and exhaustion, getting up and doing the same thing again. And so it's forcing a transformation and a change. This is what Kali Yuga is for. Dance on what doesn't work until it dies so that something new can be born. Thank God for COVID. She's a Tantra master. I mean, COVID's a Tantra master. She's a teacher. And that's what Tantra is actually about is the recognition of that. That all of this, while it is painful and so, so hard, whenever we're, you know, a chicken that's being hatched from an egg is just like, by the time it gets out, if you've ever watched that process, it just lies there. It's exhausted. And it's in so much, it's such a vulnerable state. It's in so much danger of being picked off by a predator, you know, and, and then it gets up and it gets stronger and gets all the guck off of it and then starts to become a chicken. And, you know, each of our developmental states is like that. A butterfly coming out of the cocoon is the same. It cannot fly until it has strengthened its wings and everything, all the goo has dried. And it's very vulnerable in that space. We are having that happen to us right now. We have a lot of goo on us right now. And we're not out of the shell. We're just noticing that, oh, there's a shell that needs to be broken through. And it's painful and it's hard. And so the tantric practice would dictate that we see others who are still in the shell developing and others who are dried off and running around all with compassion, that we see ourselves in all of those other incarnations. My practice all the time is to see him like COVID, like a mother, and Mm -hmm. give him generous loving kindness and gratitude for being a catalyst for each of us having to find where is, you know, I think about Hitler in the same way, people in like the French underground, you know, or slavery, you know, my family were Quakers and we were part of the underground railroad of helping slaves escape. Those moments of time when you had to help a Jewish person into safety or a slave escape, right, were times that you were called on to find some part of you to show up with courage and integration with the divine that you wouldn't have had without that catalyst. If you're just living in a happy, complacent space, you don't, you're not called on to do that, right? This happens to be that time for us in our era. Every generation has one and then we're in the middle of ours. And so what is it that we're called on to do right now that we would ordinarily not 
have had to do in our normal lives prior to COVID. That's Tantra. And it's Tantra to see those who are trying to keep the doors as closed as possible, those who are spending hours and hours watching pornography at home or incels who are murdering women because they're so lonely and feel like that's the source of the pain to look at all of these components as different parts of ourselves and to embrace those aspects. I was hiking up on Tiger Mountain about two weeks ago and this guy comes out. I'm at the top and this guy comes out of the forest and he was just a little bit like his energy. I got a little bit like squirrely about it. Mm -hmm. And um, he was just asking me like, if I follow this road down, where will I go? And so I told him, and then I was, I found myself clocking him, like noting the color of his shorts, the emblem on his hat, his shoes, like everything about him in case I had to describe him to the police. Right. Uh Uh And I'm like, Whoa, look at you. What are you doing right now? You just pulled that out of nothingness and started doing it. Right. Uh And then I remembered my dream of, with Vajra Yogini that, you know, the, the prison. And I thought, Oh, so what are you fearing right now? Well, you're fearing that he'll hurt you because you're alone up here, right? And you've had sexual abuse in your past. And so that's coming for, that's a 17 levels of perceptual field, right? So it's mm-hmm. one of mine that's in there. And I thought, okay, so what if he did? He killed me, raped me, slit my throat. Like, is that really me? This form is dying anyway. And I had so much peace. Mm-hmm. I hiked down the mountain and then he came back up and I was, and I said, hello. And I was just like, whatever happens, happens. Right. Mm-hmm. And he asked me another question and then I never saw him again. Mm-hmm. And, but it was like, I noticed that the mind does what it's going to do based on past experiences mm-hmm. and that I have an opportunity to interact with it. That's Tantra. Yes. yes. I can get in there and I can change the pattern and I can retrain the mind and it takes practice and you have to do it with intention. It's not a passive observer thing. And so that was a tantric moment with a man up there that people would usually not think like, if I were to say I practiced tantra on the top of Tiger Mountain with a guy, what would they think? <laughs> that I had intercourse. And it was like, I did have intercourse. I had this penetrating right thought process with my own mind and then realized what it was doing, retrained it. That's actually what tantra is. In relationships, we so often say, that's the line. No one does that to me. No one says that to me. This is the line. No, this is the line. No, this is the line. And we just typically feel more and more shame when we cross that line. But those lines are keep us from connection. They keep us from each other. They're the marks of the ego. Well, it depends. I mean, if you have a line that says, I'm not going to let a man hit me, I Mm -hmm. think that's a fairly legitimate and logical, rational line to keep. I guess it's the description of what the line means. So there's a line of others' behavior, mm-hmm. and then there's the line of who you are, of your identity within a relationship. No one says that to me is about me, but mm-hmm. people can say, they're going to say whatever they're going to say. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Then you get Well, to we train them. people to be who they are with us, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you show loving kindness towards someone, but then also say, please don't speak that way to me, that's not aligned so much as making sure that you're interacting with them in a way that's not a passive observer. Mm. If you take it, if someone says you're such a bitch, right? And then you just have loving kindness inside your mind and go, oh, he's just da 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 da, right? And you don't ever say anything about that, then that energetic field just got entangled with yours. And then if you think to yourself like, oh, wow, I can't even believe, you know, and whatever you're going to say about that, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's an exchange, it's an interaction, and it's active, not passive. And so you're always creating these, like, we're all part of the same field. And so we keep creating what that field looks like between us. And if you do it with a compassionate, generous heart, for yourself and another, because one of the things that's true is if you let somebody talk to you like that, then they're actually harming their own karma. They're harming their own field, right? Mm-hmm. Part of your responsibility with them, if you're together, is probably to help them not do that. So it's like watching yourself skinned alive and then having compassion for what that person's engendering for themselves. I got this with George Floyd, too, as I watched the video that my daughter showed me is I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe as these police were leaning into him, right? And at the end of it, I said, oh, my gosh, like the karma that these men that are still alive, 
mm-hmm. have just engendered for themselves is mm-hmm. tragic. And I had so much compassion for them and for George Floyd and his family. I've heard the Dalai Lama say this, that the murderer deserves as much compassion as the, the one that's murdered. And in America, we don't think that way, right? I think in America, end up condoning and allowing for, we sanction murder at some level. Like that was somehow a societally sanctioned murder, which... Like people were standing around watching it. In India, there was a riot when I was there and some guy, little policeman, had a a stick and he had just pulled this woman out of a rickshaw and was beating her and she's pregnant. I ran over in between the two of them and I grabbed his stick from behind him and I got in front of him and I was screaming at him like Kali. I mean, I was a crazy woman and just screaming at him. And I had, I had shaved my head while I was over there and I was dressed in orange and he probably thought I was a Buddhist nun and screaming at him and he didn't know what to do with me. And it, it startled him enough that he left her alone and walked away. Right. And I could help her up and get her back in and get her out of there. But you have to interact. You can't just be passive. And that's what mm-hmm. happened when George Floyd was killed. Like mm-hmm. people were passively watching, you know, and I was like, where are the people that are jumping in the middle and saying, no, don't do this. Right. This mm-hmm. is wrong. You can't do this. Where do you find the line or how do you define the line even internally between like being flayed alive and ha- being at peace in that position and interrupting violence? You have to be able to understand that if you are the policeman and you are the one being murdered, there's no difference between the two of you, then you can interrupt the energy of what's happening. They are both me. Mm-hmm. And so then you started going like, oh, I've probably been in another lifetime, this policeman, like I have done this kind of violence to another. So then you're not in a space of judgment. And also there's a bit of a willingness to not be attached to your own form, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. As you watch another person's form being killed. So it's like, no, no, you can kind of like play inside that energetic field of interrupting it. Like this is karma that's about to start that you don't want. And so then you can feel okay getting in the center of it to stop it, right? Because in a sense, I think we're all responsible for the karmic field that we all belong to. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just say, well, it wasn't my job. If you're present and and you're being passive, I don't think that's how it works. But that's my opinion. You know, all this is opinion, right? Right. And so this is just where I've come to in my life. And none of it is right. It's just like where I'm at. My 88-year-old self may look at it and go, God, you're full of bullshit. From what you've already said, you know, we should in this moment and in this moment, in this moment, forgive what we say Mm -hmm. are for the mistakes that we are making today. You know, there is likely some mix of wisdom and some mix of naivety and some mix of still some judgment. And, you know, the goal. So for listeners at home, if this type of thinking is new to you, if you haven't thought about COVID is your tantric goddess and God, (laughs) then there's always at every level, there's more material to work on. And that is the beauty of being alive Mm. is that you get to die to every past moment and you get to take each breath as a rebirth. And it changes your neurology. I mean, that's the most amazing thing is the more that you drop into at that level, the more peace you feel, then like everything shifts, you know? Yeah. And then there's not disease and there's not anger. Like in all of this process, protesting for Black Lives Matters, you know, I don't feel anger. I just feel called to speak out, but I'm not angry. You see what I mean? So there's like a difference. And so when, if you can be in that space and you have peace and equanimity in it, instead of making it be about a nervous system reactivity pattern that's getting triggered, which will make you sick. And that's what judgment does. Judgment does that. And then it causes resentment and resentment is the most poisonous, toxic chemical that you can possibly have circulating in your system. And it's not manufactured by a giant corporate machine dumping it into the waterways. It's manufactured right here. I knew going into this that we would talk about death. That was the one thing I, I had some ideas of where this conversation would go. I knew it would include death. Sex and death go together, right? So sex is part of that creative creation of birth and so then um, from birth has to come death and then it's the in-between the choices we make in the in-between that matter right that create our karma we had I have a patient who was just diagnosed with a brain tumor who is hell-bent on living and what 
came as we were talking, I just kept saying to her is, you know, you might get killed by, you might get run over and killed by a bus tomorrow. The focus on the cancer is not necessarily productive. What we know is we have time and then we know our time ends. So we can point to what we think will kill us and we can be afraid of it and we can have our mortality pointed out to us with something like a cancer or a virus or a racial injustice or an economic reality and and inequality. But that as long as we take breath, we are still here. And we don't know if maybe all of those things that we're so afraid of are just going to be ended by a bus tomorrow. Right. Here we are. Or a tsunami or a volcano erupting or, you know, like there's so many different ways. Um, I'm not being able to say it properly, but it's really, really beautiful, the sentiment of it. And it's, there are very few things that, promote life and many that destroy it. But if you are listening to this, then you are alive. That's if right. your ears are perceiving these two crazy women talking, then you are alive and yeah. you can pay attention to your breath and watch what your feelings are and work on emptying out your bucket of tears so that your mind can be clear and use all the tools in our current environment, see them as yourself as a way towards liberation. And then you're doing Tantra children's minds aren't ready to grapple with Tantra yet because everything has to be black and white. Yes. This is what keeps you alive. This is what kills you. This is right. This is wrong. Right. So, so you can't until you're about 26 actually start grappling with these more complex. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all of our listeners. Thank you for listening today with Dr. Keisha. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can get more information from about us on our website, centerforhealingneurology.com and more about Dr. Keisha and the program she offers at drkeisha, K-E-E-S-H-A.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.